Now, this is during the days when families rented their own pews, which had doors on them. And you could lock the doors because it was your family's pew. And because the people couldn't shut Charles out of preaching on Sunday mornings, many families refused to come, but they would lock their pew doors so that nobody else could use their pew. So Charles went out and bought lumber and built more pews and chairs and placed them everywhere he could so that people could come and sit during the morning service. But when he arrived on Sunday morning, all of his freshly built pews and chairs had been thrown out and broken up in the churchyard. Now, Charles was an able preacher, a good theologian, and he was actually a scholar. In fact, he was appointed one of the deans at Cambridge University several different times during his ministry. And the people who submitted to his ministry were blessed by his preaching and his pastoral care. But the vicious lies of his congregation took their toll on his reputation as a minister. When students would come to Cambridge, all they would know is that Holy Trinity Church was the church where that terrible pastor was preaching that nobody wants. And the students would call him names and assault him on campus, even though they knew nothing about him. And they would make fun of other students who actually liked Charles Simeon and were responding to his preaching. They mocked these other students and called them Sims or Simeonites during that day. But Charles Simeon made a decision early on in his ministry at Holy Trinity Church. He said to himself, I am a very young man. And when all of these older mean-spirited people are dead. I'm still going to be alive. So he decided to outlive the opposition. He stayed for 54 years at Holy Trinity Church as its pastor. He prayed for God's strength and for patience and for kindness and compassion, even in the face of these unreasonable attacks. And God blessed his prayers for patience and blessed his ministry and taught him many things. And over the years, those against him did indeed die out and he was left with a successful ministry. And late in his life, one of his friends in the ministry asked him how he could have endured so many unreasonable attacks by people who claimed to be Christians. He said, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. And somewhere along the way, Charles Simeon developed a little list of five rules that he always used when it came to conflict. And I wanted to share them with you. Here's his five rules. He said he always endeavored, one, to hear as little as possible what is the prejudice of others. Two, to believe nothing of the kind till I am absolutely forced to it. Three, never to drink into the spirit of one who circulates an ill report. Four, always to moderate as far as I can the unkindness which is expressed toward others. And five, always to believe that if the other side were heard, a very different account would be given of the matter. Do you know what this is? 
This is an expression of wisdom from above. Wisdom from God. Do you know how I know? James tells us. James says, if you want to identify the wise person, the religious expert among you, that's what that word understanding means, remember from last week. You can tell who that person is by behavior that produces meekness of wisdom. That is the meekness that comes from true wisdom. What James calls in verse 17, wisdom from above, wisdom from God. In other words, those who are truly wise live and interact with other people in such a way that does not compound divisiveness, hatred, meanness, abuse, but rather promotes truth and goodness and encouragement and kindness. That is to say that true wisdom, wisdom from above, does not cause or advance division and strife and discord, but brings peace and relational healing. We saw this last week, the entire book of Proverbs, which is a collection of wisdom inspired by God, makes this point again and again in Proverbs. The wise are always responding in a way that promotes peace and harmony and kindness and goodness and blessing. But foolish and wicked behavior always leads in Proverbs to contention and greed and pride and bitterness and even poverty. Proverbs says a soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. A gentle tongue, a meek tongue, it is a tree of life, but a crooked tongue crushes the spirit. Proverbs says, it is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Better is a person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and a fool. This doesn't mean, by the way, that there is no place for disagreement or stern words or rebuke or even war. Because we live in a fallen world and sometimes we have to do difficult things. We have to get tough to promote a culture of harmony and peace. Proverbs 24, 25 tells us those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. In fact, the very concept of a just war is a time of necessary violence to put down those who want to destroy peace and prosperity as the only means to ultimately promoting peace and prosperity. We see this very thing in Revelation, as many of you remember, our whole series through Revelation, before the thousand-year peaceful reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, where he comes to reign, he comes as a conquering king, destroying his enemies, vindicating himself and his people once and for all. Praise God. By the same principle, when you discipline your children... It ought to be for the purpose of promoting the wise and righteous path of peace in their lives and in your home. That's why Proverbs 13, 20, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline them. Ted Tripp said that some people say, I, I love my children too much to discipline them. His answer is, no, you love yourself too much to discipline them because you're not looking at God's wisdom. In fact, Proverbs 23, 14 says that when you discipline your children and it's an act of mercy and an effort to deliver their souls from hell, which is an eternal place of unrest and suffering. So within the body of Christ, difficult conversations or disagreements are sometimes necessary, but only when they are used for the purpose of advancing what is right and good. And that's what, which will ultimately bring or restore peace 
between those in the congregation. Not because we lose our cool. Not because we're proud. Not because we feel that our rights have been violated. No, that's promoting self-wisdom. That's promoting our own agenda, our own self-importance or our position. That's why James tells us in verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, don't pretend to be the wise one, the religious specialist, the expert or leader or example of how to live as a believer among God's people. Don't don't think you're that person. Because as James continues, this is not wisdom that comes down from above. If that's what you're, what's going on in your heart, you're not being wise. Not, not after God's wisdom. In fact, it's a different kind of wisdom. It might have the appearance of wisdom from above because it seems to be concerned with what is right and good, but it cannot be from above if, if, it, promotes, if it promotes disunity in the body of Christ. In fact, it is actually what I have called wisdom from below. If you remember from last week, this is exactly how James teaches us what true wisdom looks like. James says that a truly wise believer will behave in a way that produces peace or spiritual harmony within the church. And he makes this point emphatic by drawing a contrast between wisdom from above, that which is from God, and wisdom from below. Last Lord's Day, we considered what wisdom from below looks like. James is very clear on this. He says that wisdom that is not from above is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly refers to that which is upon the earth as opposed to that which is in heaven. Or or that which you can see and touch and taste here on this earth as opposed to the unseen world, the real world. What Paul calls things above in Colossians chapter 3. Unspiritual is actually the word soulish in the Greek New Testament. It refers to the purely physical or emotional aspects of who we are as opposed to the spiritual aspect of what we are before God. And a lot of really good-sounding wisdom can appeal to us because it promises health and wealth and fulfillment and relational wholeness. And yet its only goal is to make you a happy, productive, respected member of your family and your society in the here and now. And it doesn't ever take God's will and eternity with God in view. It does not lead to the fear of God in a holy life. And that's why James also calls it demonic. This this is a reference to its source. It may seem right and attractive to a person, but it's actually from the devil and will lead a person down a nice little primrose path, diligently loving oneself right into hell. That's where it leads. You can feel like you're even a Christian because you, you follow some Christian principles, but you're not submitting to the gospel of Christ and the fear of God, which is the beginning of true wisdom. So how do we learn to recognize wisdom that is from below and not from above? Because those who practice wisdom from below manifest jealousy and selfish ambition in their relationships and in their ministries. And we find in them there's this this disorder, this disruption, rather than peace and every vile practice we find, meaning all shapes and sizes of various sins. So he says this has to be wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic because uh, every disorder and every evil practice is manifested where there is jealousy and selfish ambition. 
And last week, we applied this to the Corinthian congregation, you remembered. They were, the Corinthians, they were embroiled in disunity. In their congregation, they were tolerating immorality, 1 Corinthians 5. In their worship, they were talking over one another and exercising various gifts of speech all at once out of jealousy and competition, 1 Corinthians 14. So their worship was a cacophony of chaotic disruption. Read the text in 1 Corinthians 14 sometime, and, and really the implications of 1 Corinthians 12. And Paul tells them, unbelievers are going to come into your assembly and they're going to say, you're out of your minds. I can't even understand anything that's going on here. And then he says later in 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of what? Confusion, but a God of peace. And in conclusion, he says, let all things be done, what? Decently and in order. That's wisdom from above. Because that is what wisdom from above produces, not confusion, but peace, not disorder, but order, not cacophony, but symphony, not injustice and lies, but righteousness and truth. By the way, Paul asks the same question of the Corinthians that James asks his scattered flock in this letter, in in this text. Who is the one who is wise, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.20. And Paul draws a distinction in 1 Corinthians 1 between human wisdom and divine wisdom. And he says at the end of the chapter that Christ Jesus became to us or for us the wisdom from God. So if you're a believer in Christ this morning, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can learn true wisdom from above. So we spent some time last week understanding wisdom from below. But in our remaining minutes this morning, let's consider what James says in contrast to wisdom from below. In verse 17, he describes what wisdom from above looks like. He says, but the wisdom from above is first, notice, pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The words first and then are not just incidental words in the translation. In the Greek language, these words construct an explicit ordering of ideas. Wisdom from above is first and foremost pure. And then, or afterwards, it is all of these other virtues. In other words, James has a specific ordering of ideas here. So here's how he describes wisdom from above. Wisdom from above, he says, is first of all, morally right. He calls it pure. The word pure means chaste, right, wholesome, separated. It's a word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 11 to refer to a pure virgin. In other words, all wisdom from above, wisdom from God, has a single priority. It must be right, good, truthful, separate from evil. What I'm summarizing here as morally Right. That's why Proverbs eleven fourteen says that there is safety in a multitude, in an abundance of counselors. Not because there is some virtue in compounding opinions, which is what you get when, sometimes when you have a multitude of counselors, but it's because it's an opportunity to gather several perspectives of several people who are all trying to make a decision that is morally right. 
And here is what this tells us. It tells us that the highest priority for our decisions and our beliefs is that they must be right decisions. They must be true decisions. They must correspond to God's word and his will. They have to be right. They have to be good. We never sacrifice what is right in order to maintain harmony or in order to make a sort of culture where we simply don't make waves. That's not biblical wisdom. That's not wisdom from above. In other words, some of us could naturally be called peacemakers only because we simply hate conflict. Some of you are like that. And uh, I feel for you. I just want you to know. You hate conflict. If something uh, will, will happen that's bad or someone will get upset, we won't open our mouths. If we're going to cause division, we just won't go there. That's, that's, that's just our personality. It's not necessarily virtuous. It's just a trait, but it can mislead us if we are, if we are willing to overlook truth for the sake of unity, for the sake of harmony. But it really isn't unity or harmony when people are pretending to go along with it because no one will raise the question, is this right? We live in a world where everybody asks, can we do it? Very few people ask, should we do it? I mean, a lot of people seem to be happy and amicable and harmonious people who are nice to be with until somebody says no to them. And that which is right and true and good has a way of saying no. It has a way of drawing lines. Because if there is a morally right path of a choice, it means there's also a morally wrong path. And as believers who care about truth and righteousness, who care about the glory of God, we ought to be concerned primarily about the truth. We ought to be willing to stand up for what is right. We ought to be willing to push back if truth is on the line. However, however, we need to check our spirit and our motivation and our ideas to make sure we are really pushing back because truth and moral rightness is on the line and not simply because we're crusading our own understanding or making an issue because we weren't treated fairly or because, yes, he was right, but I don't think he went about it the right way or because we were overlooked or because we are trying to make our point or because we are trying to get back at someone because this is wisdom from below, according to James. It's a response that's motivated, as he says, from bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, as he says in verse 14. So when we are making a decision in our interaction with other people, as we live among one another in the body of Christ, let us first and foremost be concerned about truth, about moral rightness. But we need to make sure that is what we're really concerned about. Wisdom from above is first pure. However, James doesn't stop there. He says wisdom from above is secondarily relationally edifying. That's how I'm going to summarize the rest of these ideas. I thought a long time before using these two big words, okay? I try to make it a little more simple, but, but I'm, I'm trying to capture everything he's saying here in this list because really the list is all saying one thing. It's James's main point from verses 13 to 18. You can tell if you are making wise choices in your communication, your dealings with others, and your treatment with others by whether the relationship is built up or torn down. James's leading word is peaceable. 
And it's the reason I entitled this whole section, Live with One Another Peacefully. I believe that this particular word subsumes the rest of the ideas. In other words, he starts with peaceable. Everything else, I think, can fit under that umbrella. I think it's the reason, in fact, that James climaxes this section in verse 18, talking about peace. That's how he finishes this whole section. That's why the word peaceable heads the list here. Peace in the Bible does not simply mean no fighting. Uh, There's some wonderful online tools when you're writing things, and one of my favorites is there's a a website that's a thesaurus, and that's why I can find creative words that I don't know. You know, now you know the now you know the trick. Uh, You know, you 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 look because I'm always I don't want to just you know use fancy words. You're trying to use a word that just says it exactly right in the English language to make truth clear. Well, you look up peace in the regular thesaurus online you don't find the biblical definition. You don't. I was kind of surprised by this. There's no, no sample of it, all, of it at all. Peace simply means you're not at war with somebody. That's how we use the word. But in the Bible, to live peaceably or to be a peacemaker means you are interacting with one another in a way that strengthens your love and appreciation for one another, even if you disagree. Peace in the Bible is a matter of wholeness, bringing everything together. To be the force of peace in the conversation or the relationship means that even if you're talking about something as important as right and wrong, you have that person's ultimate good in mind. You're not making more unrighteousness by having an unrighteous conversation about something that's right. You want to work toward one another's understanding and, and understand each other's position and, and, and communicate that you value kindness and openness and goodwill toward that person. And you see, by, by saying that this is secondary, it doesn't mean it's unimportant. I mean, to the contrary, this list of relational virtues is James' whole point in verses 13 through 18. This is what he's getting at, not the other. You can think that, Before God and witnesses, you are doing or saying or insisting on exactly what the right moral path is. You can be totally convinced. But if you are doing so in a way that is tearing down your relationships with others, and this could have been avoided if you would only speak civilly and show mercy and not take things so personally and try to see the other point of view and so forth, then you are not practicing wisdom from above. Suddenly, your wisdom from above, which may have been morally right, just transformed into wisdom from below because you cared only about the issues and not about the people. And we are not allowed to love truth but not love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not allowed to love truth but not love our neighbors. The only reason this list is secondary is because we may love others and do everything we can to keep peace, and the other person will not reciprocate. Have you been in that kind of situation before? The reason we have to love others and not worry about what the other person is thinking because they may not love us back. And at the end of the day, we have to do what is pure. We have to do what is morally right, even if it means we break a relationship. But that is the last resort. That's why Paul tells us in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, you know this verse, right? If it is possible, so far as it depends on you. There's two caveats already. Paul says, live peaceably with all. 
Paul knows it's impossible to live peaceably with all, all the time. So he throws these two caveats in, but he still sets the bar very high. It's very important. It's very important as far as it depends on you. If possible, you live peaceably with all. In other words, you promote the wholeness of the relationship. Well, how are we to do that? James gives us several ideas right here. And I think that when he says peaceable, as I said, the rest of the words demonstrate that this is how we achieve peace in our life with one another. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these details, actually, but I want you to understand what he's saying here. Uh, First of all, he uses the word gentle. That means mild-mannered, gentle, meek, humble, not insisting in our own way. And if you think, well, you know, that's just not my personality. Well, you know what? That means you've got something to work on, (laughs) you know? Uh, Some people are are naturally mild and meek, and and sometimes they need to get cranked up about something that's true. Others of us, we, we struggle with gentleness, and we need to back off. We need to pump the brakes, okay? But that's what James says. You be gentle. You take this carefully. You remember you don't have it all right. You're not gift, God's gift to rightness. You may be wrong. Approach it as gentle. Secondly, he says, be open to reason. You know what that means? Literally, it means easily persuaded. That doesn't mean gullible or a pushover, not someone who knows what is right, who will easily go, easily go along with something that's wrong. And we've already established that wisdom from above is morally right. It means that you say, you know, you bring up a good point. Or, you know, I didn't think about that. You know, let me think about this some more. It's trying to be pliable. It's trying to give in when you can. It's, it's, it's when you say when you can, you know what, let's go along with what you said. I think that'll work. Do you realize, oh, you perfectionists, that sometimes it doesn't have to be done exactly the way you see it, Okay. I'm preaching to myself here, okay? My, I, my wife points out that I'm a perfectionist, but only about a couple of things. Everything else just is, you know, throw caution to the wind. Uh, but every once in a while, uh, you know, the perfectionism comes out. You know, it's okay that it doesn't have to be done exactly the way you think, especially when it encourages someone or gives you an opportunity to strengthen your relationship with someone or to show kindness to someone. He also says that this kind of of, uh, wisdom, wisdom from above, is full of mercy and good fruits. It's an interesting combination that that James is actually joining together here. And it it could go off in a dozen different directions, but I just want you to understand what he means. The, The primary idea is that you are showing mercy to people even when you know you are right. Even when you could really show them how wrong they are. Really let them have it. And the good fruits are simply the multiple ways that you struggle to demonstrate the kindness toward them anyway in the conversation. And James's two final words really go hand in hand. He says impartial, that has to do with being undivided, unambiguous. In other words, you truly want the other person's good. You're not just putting it on for the sake of discussion. Do you ever feign like you're being kind just to get what you want from somebody, just to manipulate somebody? But you're honest about this. You're not putting it on. You're not forcing yourself to be nice. You're committed to that person. And along with that, sincere, literally not an actor. That's literally the word in the Greek. Not an actor. Open, transparent, transparent honest. What you see is what you get. 
one of the hallmarks of good conversation that shows respect for one another. You be graciously honest with one another. And listen, you give the other person the freedom to disagree without consequence, without fearing retaliation or anger. Because you may be that person who can be painfully honest, but you don't give other people the same ability because they're afraid to disagree with you because you, they know you're always going to be right. And people just don't want to deal with it. There's so many other ways that we can live out these virtues. And I, I, I will uh, assume because of the ministry of the Spirit, that what is going on in your mind is the same thing that's been going on in my mind as I've read this text. There are conversations you're thinking about, things that you've done in the past, examples that you're remembering, where you're saying, yes, this is a better way to live out wisdom from above. We need to edify one another in our relationships. We need to build people up. We need to create wholeness. And you see what James says at the end of this list? I love this. I mean, this is pure wisdom. This is, this is the essence of James right here. He's so good. He says, a harvest of righteousness is sown, how? In peace, by means of peace. I think that's a, for you Greek grammarians, that's, that's a, a dative of means, okay? Uh, it, it's sown by means of peace, by those who make peace. Is our concern really for righteousness? Do we really want to promote what is morally right? Wisdom from below would logically tell us then you insist on what is right all the time. You don't compromise. You don't back down. You fight with people. You go to the mats. If, if you don't agree, that's tough. We're dealing with truth here and God's glory is on the line. James says, that it is those who live peaceably with one another that will see a veritable harvest of righteousness. Which means that promoting truth and righteousness is not always achieved by insisting on truth and righteousness, not to the destruction of relationships. And we're creating more unrighteousness to protect righteousness. The promotion of truth and righteousness is achieved through living with one another as much as possible, peaceably. If you really care about what is right, you'll not just promote the right, but you will promote the right in a way that shows you genuinely care about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I'm looking at the clock here. Can I make some further observations about this for just a few more minutes? I mean, I, I, I know that it is a little later than I normally stop. But, you know, a lot of you are going to hang around here for another 40 minutes or so after we leave, which is actually a, a good thing. It demonstrates, uh, you know, your care for one another. So if you can stand a few more minutes of this, I've got to tell you about this. This is, this is this, I, I've learned so much about this passage this week and the way it, it connects with the rest of the New Testament. I'm just tell you a couple of things really quickly. If, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can do this, but I'm going to go to James, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter four. I'm going to look at Paul for just a few minutes. Ephesians chapter 4. What James is saying is the same kind of thing Paul is speaking about in Ephesians chapter 4. And this is a, a passage we all need to know as, his, as God's church. Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. You see that in verse 1? Well, what kind of calling is that? Well, the main thrust of the whole letter of Ephesians up to this point has been the fact that God through Christ is bringing people into true harmony with himself 
and into true union with each other through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In, in chapter 2, you see this especially. He puts people back together through the gospel, verses 1 through 10. And in verses 11 and following, he takes the two un, most unlikely people groups in human history, Jews and Gentiles, and puts them at one in the church and makes the two one new person. That is amazing. And, and if, if people look at Gateway Baptist Church and they see love and harmony, it is our illustration that reconciliation is possible through Christ. If we're not getting along, it betrays the fact that we don't really know much about reconciliation. And Paul knows this. He says, if we are truly united into one body, if we are truly brothers and sisters in Christ, then he says, there is a particular way we must live with one another in the church. And here is the way, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness. Does that sound familiar? With patience, bearing with one another. That means you put up with each other. In love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know what that means? It means the Spirit gives unity to the church. It's His gift. But we must be eager to maintain it. In other words, we do what is necessary to maintain that peace with one another, lest we lose the peace, lest we lose the unity that the Spirit is giving to us. And this is the message of James 3. If you ever have to have a difficult conversation with a brother or sister, you need to make sure it is for the right reason. It is for the advancement of truth. It ought to begin with prayer and humble acknowledgement of your own need for wisdom and your own dependency upon God for the solution of the problem. This is wisdom from above. Now, if we keep reading the passage, James goes on, I'm going to skip a little bit here, uh, to, to explain because of Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection and ascension that Jesus Christ gave gifts to his church in the form of ministers to do two things, to preach and advance the truth, and secondly, to nurture the unity that the Spirit has given to the church so that the church may be one in fellowship with one another, united around moral rightness by means of relational wholeness. Look what he says in verse 11. He gave the apostles and the prophets. These are the first in order of who he gave so that the truth could be established and, and Christ's work in the church could be established, the apostles and prophets, and then they, they faded away after the first century. And then the evangelists, whose task was essentially to plant local churches, and then the shepherds and teachers, who were to remain in one place and see the local church built up and established. And notice that, that all of these offices, especially the last two, are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. That's, that's the one body grown up, this, this, this robust male, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. You see that? Moral rightness coupled with relational edification. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, 
into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And if those of, those of you who know biology and you've, you, you're in, in the medical field, you know that Paul's physiology here isn't exactly what you learn in, in the classroom. But what he's saying here by illustration is that Christ is the head and the life of Christ flows to the rest of the body from joint to joint to joint or through the joints to the different members of the body, so the whole body is nourished. Do you know that pastors are given to congregations not only so that they can uphold truth, that's primary, but secondarily so that they can maintain the peace that the Holy Spirit has given to the body, so that there is an environment of growth? Do you realize that I, as a pastor, am bound to these two fold tasks. And that sometimes I have to make decisions that simply help peace to be maintained in the body of Christ as long as I'm not compromising truth. And that can be a very tricky thing. Did it ever occur to you that part of the pastoral qualifications that you are given so that you can affirm who your pastors and elders are have to do with whether they can maintain peace in the body? Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that an elder should not be a drunkard and not violent, but gentle. There's our word again. That word is epia case. It's the same word we find in James 3. The pastor has to be known as a gentle person because part of his task is, is seeing the promotion of gentleness in the body. He's not to be quarrelsome. He's not itching for a fight. And he says to Titus in Titus 1, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And notice then that he is all of these things, yet he never sacrifices truth for unity. It says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and when necessary, if it ever comes up, and sometimes it does in churches more often than others, to rebuke those who contradict it. These are the character qualities of the man who has been called to be a pastor or an elder. There's a stereotype of the old preacher who would deal sternly with sin and with the people in his church in my lifetime, I've heard pastors say things like, this is my church, and if you try to kick me out, I'm, I'm going to bring a shotgun into the pulpit. Or I've heard men say, bless God, we had a backdoor revival today. I preached two families out of the church. Or I went in and really cleaned house. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is not the character of pastoral ministry. This grieves me when I hear things like this. And yes, men like Titus are encouraged by Paul to rebuke and to contradict. And Paul tells the Corinthian church to separate from those who are not walking as believers and even deliver them to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And that is very strong language. But that is what we must do to maintain peace when heretics come into the church, when wolves are there in sheep's clothing, and with those whose sin is corrupting the body and they're unrepentant. And to maintain peace, we have to dismiss those who are not allowing peace. But we don't rejoice in the fact that we have abused or pushed people around who need to be disciplined and shepherded instead and given time for the Holy Spirit to continue their work 
continue his work in their lives. You know, it took the Holy Spirit a long time to work on you and he's still working. Why are we so impatient with other people? A shepherd must have great patience. And even Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you understand? We're not supposed to look at these people who are in great need of spiritual growth as somebody we must fight or rail against, even when they may directly contradict something we teach them. We're to have pity on their souls. And see them for who they really are. They're people who've been captured by the devil, unwittingly bound by him to do his will. We ought to have hearts of compassion for them like Jesus. Jesus would look out at a whole crowd of scattered people who have yet to be sanctified and view them as sheep in need of a shepherd. And he would teach them, or he would feed them, or he would heal them. Jesus ministered this way. Though he was the essence of moral rightness, the essence of purity in both doctrine and habit. And Jesus was greatly criticized for this compassionate ministry by none other than the religious elites, the so-called religious experts, the theological specialists of his day. But that's because they were not promoting wisdom from above. They were promoting wisdom from below, wisdom that is selfish, wisdom that is earthly, wisdom that is of the devil. Jesus could have ministered the way they wanted him to. Jesus could have ministered in such a way that really beat up people. He had every right to. He was the righteous son of God. He was coming to judge one day. (laughs) Jesus could have really let people have it right between the eyes. Jesus could have been a real fighter. He could have been a stormy preacher. He could have really ratcheted down the guilt on people. And, and we could have said, yeah, and, 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 and that really seems harsh, but, but we remember he loved people, and, and after all, everything he said was right and true. We could read of a Jesus like this in the Gospels the way he could have ministered, and I'll guarantee you there are Christian people in the church who would rush to justify that kind of Jesus. Because it makes sense to us. Truth is truth and we should never compromise truth. And Jesus is the prince of all truth. But this is not the picture we see of Jesus in the Gospels. This is not the great shepherd. This is what we read in the Gospels. Wisdom from above. We see Jesus gently leading those sheep. We see his compassion. We see his love. Yes, he was stern when he needed to be, but, but overall, we see this love. Earthly wisdom wants to make a caricature out of righteousness. Earthly wisdom wants to make a character out of love and unity. In other words, overinflate those virtues. But biblical wisdom holds both intention so that we are uncompromising with the truth, but we are equally uncompromising in our compassion for one another. That's what James says is wisdom from above. And that's what James calls living up to our faith. Father, thank you for...